weekend. Swamp beaches, everybody. Check for swamp beaches. They're pulling off. Nobody else got hit? I'm the only one? What's the deal? Hey, this is Ryan from the Moon is Dead World. Uh, we're back with another Blood and Black Rum podcast, and this time we're really not covering anything horror-related, not even on the outskirts and the fringe of horror. Uh, you know, no action movies, no Japanese noir, no crime drama. This time we're back with a different kind of horror, Wes Anderson movies. <laughs> I know a lot of people would think of them as a sort of horror horror movie in itself just because of all the, the hipsterism within it, <laughs> the... Literary or, bent, or, or as uh, the film so pointly, uh, accurately points out, within five minutes, the intelligentsia. Yes, yes. Uh, I, I, so, so it is. It is horror in a way, but in a different in a different style. Um, and I joke because both of us are, are fans of Wes Anderson, huge fan. Yeah, yes, Martin's a huge fan. He's seen pretty much everything except for. Um, I never got the around Fantastic to... Mr. Fox, right? Fantastic Mr. Fox, and I never got around to watching the short film for Darjeeling uh, Hotel Chevalier. Cause I did watch that just one. Just because I couldn't be bothered, because I and didn't really care. Really, for I wouldn't bother. that. I, I didn't really think it was anything useful to watch. I mean, it was okay. Uh, I don't know. I, I didn't didn't uh, grab me, but um, I but I did see that. And uh, I have seen Darjeeling Limited, and that's by far one of our least favorite Wes Anderson movies. It's probably my least. Yeah. yeah. Besides, I, I, besides the soundtrack to it, there's nothing really that... I haven't seen some of his other films. Um, I haven't seen Rushmore. Which is fantastic. And... Is that it? Is that all I haven't seen? And Fantastic Mr. And Fantastic Mr. Fox, yeah. Because you've, um, you've seen Bottle Rocket. I have. You watched that together. Mm-hmm. You've seen The Royal Ten Bombs. You've seen The Life Aquatic with Steve Zizou. Seen Darjeeling. Seen Darjeeling. You've seen, seen the Moonrise, Moonrise Kingdom. And now we've seen Grand Budapest Hotel. So, yeah, uh, other than Rushmore, I've seen them all. And, and would, I mean, would you say Rushmore is. One of his better films, yeah, it's yeah. Probably, it's probably my second favorite. So I'm, I'm, I'm missing out on a, on a great film, great film yeah. that it's like Bill Murray wet finest. Well, yeah, that that makes sense. Um, before we get into, um, you know, the Grand Budapest Hotel, we obviously have to take a break, a drink break, to talk about what we've been drinking today. And today is a very different day. Today we have really ventured out in the beer world to try something new, something that we don't normally have uh have available to us for one thing but uh the also, perks of living in a small town that's right i mean we get a lot of sam adams we get a lot of saranac we get a lot of the more uh mainstream brews like blue moon and shock top and things like that but we don't get a lot of um breweries that maybe are not like super small micro breweries but are just a little bit bigger from different areas, we don't so we don't get a lot that are aren't from New York, um, and that's kind of kind of upsetting because we want to try some new things besides you know Syrinac and Sam Adams. So it could be wrong. They they often put out a good brew, but I do like to venture outside of the box a little bit, and today we got to do that. First, uh, Martin picked up a the Sam Adams Rebel Grapefruit IPA, which is new, right? I mean that's pretty yeah. that's pretty new. Um, kind of groaned when I saw it, just because it's like, oh, really? Another IPA? Another fucking, oh well, yeah. That, like, another IPA, and, like, now, you know, Sam's kind of pushing the, you know, the Rebel, like, like kind of like it almost seems like it's like its own brand. It's own offshoot. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think what they're doing is they're trying to segment their IPA experiments to one brand. Like, brand. Yeah. yeah. Um, which... Honestly, I kind of, I kind of like because then you, you know, when they don't do that, you run the risk of getting a pack that has like a bunch of IPAs in it. In this case, when they do the Rebels, you know that if you're buying a Rebel, it's going to be an IPA or a Pale Ale. Um, which, which is true because I mean, I, I do, I do agree with that. Like, not to sound like hypocritical, but I, I do agree with that because with their new Spring Pack we talked about, where we got to see the Scotch Ale come back and the ESB. Yeah. And, which is nice instead of them cramming in, you yeah. know, a rebel rider and you know. Yeah, they're trying to they're trying to take that and separate it. And, and they I do think, have and they do have their own IPA pack. Like, they do, yeah. So. They have the IPA pack there. Um, and I think, yeah, this is like an offshoot of like their 
their brews that they used to to do, the ones that only came in the sixteen ounce bottle, or was it six or thirty two? I can't remember. Uh, twenty four. Twenty four. Uh, the twenty four ounce bottles that were kind of like their craft experimental beers. Um, I think this is like another branch on that because they haven't really been doing any of those anymore. No, 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 no new th- uh, twenty four ounce beers. Uh, they kind of stopped doing that, and I haven't really seen them in stores anymore that which was is kind sh- of like a limited thing which is a shame because they were you know pretty all the ones that i tried, I tried yeah they're, they're pretty, pretty, pretty good. good i mean they had a barley wine that they don't yeah. normally do um not that i'm a huge fan of barley wine but the rock bock uh yeah yeah that this the yeah the smoky they had the smoky bock that mm-hmm. was like you know seriously smoky yeah. that took me like three days to drink the 24 ounce bottle because it's so smoky but i mean at least they were experimenting with it and it was really cool to see but i think rebel riders like or not rebel rider but that's part of their Pack, but the Rebel series is like a, a new way for them to experiment with things that they wouldn't normally do. So in a way, I can definitely, I think that's a good thing that they're kind of segmenting it to the one series. Um, so this one was a Rebel Grapefruit IPA. And um, not grapefruit IPAs really aren't prevalent around here. And they haven't really been a big selling point for most breweries. Uh, you know, you, you, get, you get a lot of colored IPAs. Is, is I, think, I, think, I, sh- I think I think I think I think grapefruit's like the next step now that they're running out of colors. Like, oh shit, we've yeah, done yeah. like a red IPA, a white IPA, a black IPA. Mm-hmm. Sh- you know, running out of you know, colors now. I'm surprised they didn't just name this one a pink IPA. <laughs> you know, because it's basically pink grapefruit. Yeah, but um, this, I, I mean, I'll be honest with you. Any IPA that really tries to sell something different besides the general lemony citrus of it is is going to rope me in. Because I do, I mean, I like IPAs, but I also like how they try to change them a little bit. And I love grapefruit. And grapefruit has this really nice bitterness to it with a sweetness that I like a lot. See, I, I'm not a big fan of grapefruit. Like, uh-huh. um I like grapefruit flavor, like with like yeah. when it's balanced and mixed with like something like this. But like, like a fresh grapefruit. Is not no, it's too bitter for me. Same thing with like uh, grapefruit juice. Like I remember trying it like back in college because mm-hmm. my one friend's like, "Oh, simply grapefruit's like the greatest drink on earth." And I spent five dollars on like a bottle of it. And I took like one glass, drank like half, and I'm like, "I can't drink this. This is too damn bitter for me." Well, I mean, if you think about it with an IPA, I mean, the IPA is already bitter. So the bitterness within the grapefruit is really going to mesh with that. Mm. And then you're going to get sort of that sweetness uh, in of the grapefruit that comes out. And I think that's what you see with the Sam Adams Grapefruit IPA. It's, um, I would say that there's not a ton of, you know, you're not going to get hit over the head with the grapefruit when you drink it. Um, you said, because you, you, had, you had one before today, that when you poured it into a glass. Yeah. And you tried it, and the grapefruit really dissipated on yeah, it. It was very, yeah, it was very more, weak grapefruit flavor. Yeah, it was more. You definitely got more of an IPA kick to it than yeah. the grapefruit. The grapefruit was still in the front, kind of like in the bottle, but it was very more, much more mild than say when you drink it straight from the bottle. You drink it straight from the bottle, you got like a big hit of grapefruit in the beginning that you know gave that grapefruit like sweet bitterness, and then the hoppiness to the beer. I think what they've done is they've added grapefruit peel and grapefruit juice to it and um i'll be honest i would like to see a little bit more grapefruit flavor within this because you'll you'll notice that it really they tend to blend together there is that little bit of grapefruit grapefruit flavoring that comes out within it but as you drink it it starts to just it tastes like a a pretty standard ipa with just a little bit of sweetness from that grapefruit i would have liked to seen to have seen a little bit more of the grapefruit flavoring within it It, you know if that meant adding more juice to it um or like lightening the hops just a little bit maybe to to allow for that Mm -hmm. flavor to to um kind of permeate throughout but i mean i think that it's pretty good and i i like it as a different style of ipa i i can see myself drinking this more than maybe just a regular IPA because, you know, half the time I'm drinking IPAs because they're all <laughs> always in a pack. Like the other day, uh, I you know, I'd normally have like a beer night, you know, with dinner or something. So I think like three days in a row, I randomly grabbed a beer from packs that I have and it was always an IPA I, for like three days in a row. So, you know, that that's you have like an overabundance of that's, IPA. That's, that's, well, that's when why I, I said 2016, you're the Scotch Ale. Yeah. But 
Yeah, no, I, like I said, I agree. I like it. I, I wouldn't probably go out of my way to buy it again. I think I would get it again. I, I mean, I, I liked it, but like I said, I like just for its price and whatnot. I just, yeah. for me, like, I don't know. Like, anytime they come out with a new variation of uh, IP, like, as we said before on, on the podcast, one of the first, like, kind of newer style IPAs that we were introduced to is, like, you know, five years back when Serenac came out with a white IPA. And for mm-hmm. me, it's kind of like chasing the pink dragon. Like, can anything come close to, like, like the variation yeah. of the IPA style that the Serenac's white IPA was and, you know, be as good as that? But still haven't really found anything as good as that. <laughs> Um, the other beer that we had today that you picked up for a, almost a, a cool 20 buck, mm-hmm. uh, for a six pack was Ballast Points Habanero Sculpin. I was really interested in trying this one when I saw it in the, in the, um, store probably a few weeks ago, but I was deterred from what I figured was a high price point mm. and certainly it was. Um, Ballast Point is not a common beer around here, um... So we don't get it that often. Uh, but this one is a really distinct beer. Now, it's a chili beer, um, which, if you're not familiar with a chili beer, is basically any sort of pepper within your beer. Um, so it's a chili beer that's also an IPA. Now, I've had chili beers before. I've had a jal- jalapeno... I can't even remember what it was. Jalapeno Pilsner or something like that. I've had I've also had a habanero another habanero uh, beer but I can't remember exactly what it was or no no actually I'm sorry I'm sorry I'm wrong it was chipotle that's what it was it was a chipotle something I can't even remember what it was but so I've had a few chili beers but none that have the heat of Ballast Points habanero sculpin the jalapeno beer that I had you definitely taste the jalapeno in it and it's got just a very slight hint of heat there and the same thing with the chipotle you taste the smokiness of the chipotle but you don't really get the much of the heat mm-hmm. but with the habanero sculpin man do you get that heat like right off the bat so you're gonna get the overwhelming flavor of this is habanero um if you don't like pepper if you don't like habanero t- the taste of habaneros you're definitely gonna want to stay away from this because you the first taste on your tongue that you get is the habanero and then the flavors of the the hops and the the ipa come into play but not so much as the habanero i mean that's really the the overwhelming majority of the taste to this one um so like i said you don't like pepper you're definitely going to want to stay away from this it's got a, a really really hot heat especially the the pack that we got the bottle says the heat may vary so Depending on, you know, when it was brewed, how long it sat in the bottle, I guess. You might get a, a, a hotter one. You might get a, a cooler one. Um, but ours was definitely, I would say probably, like, on a scale of 1 to 10, I would say like a 7 for heat level, at least. It's probably it's, a 7. It's, it's, pretty, it's fairly it's it's, sp- spicy. It's pretty... I, it's, it's spicy. <laughs> every time you take, like, a little sip of it, like I am now, because I'm still working on mine. I haven't finished mine yet, uh... Um, it definitely tickles the throat. Oh, yeah. And the back of your throat ends up, you know, you feel the heat lingering. It's And I agree, it does have a big uh, habanero taste to it. I wouldn't say so. It's so, like, spicy, though, that you're going to be, like, running to, like, you know, put your head in a faucet and <laughs> anything like that type of heat. It, but, it, I mean, if you like heat, then it's not going to overwhelm yeah. you. It's definitely not like you're eating, like, a raw pepper like and and i remember in college like we my or one friend brought us chocolate habaneros they weren't actually covered in chocolate it was just because it was like a dark brown color right and we ate them and it, like for three hours our mouths were on fire like just sitting mm. there just drinking water like running to the bathroom but it's nothing like it's not like anywhere near that spicy it's more like i would compare the spiciness kind of to if you ate like a raw jalapeno yeah probably like you know so yeah it's, like a raw one that you just yeah yeah um, but you, and, and you do get, um, some hops, some hops and some of the pininess at the end, but for the most part, it is very overwhelmingly just that hit of pepper and spiciness that 
like just lingers in your throat. Well, I mean, and that's I like that. I mean, I like that it's not overwhelmingly hoppy. I like that it has that habanero. I mean, that's why I wanted it. I wanted it mm. for the habanero. I didn't want it for the IPA part of it as as much. Um, I would be interested to see what they could do with like a ghost pepper sculpin because that oh, yeah. would be fucking hot. If if I mean, what a I, habanero sculpin is right now, I can't imagine what a ghost pepper sculpin. I would. would be. I would definitely try it. But I, it's funny too because I'm sitting here thinking like, and you're right. This is definitely a beer. You're not like when you buy it, you're not sitting down like on a Sunday night watching football, like cracking no, a few of no, these you're, open. You're like, definitely not. And it has literally taken me about an hour and a half to slowly kind of just yeah. sip through this because, and not because of the heat, but just because of the over, the taste of it. It's yeah. just not anything that you want to ground and pound. It's well, I mean, it's also 7% alcohol, which, which is pretty surprisingly high for a beer like mm. this. Um, I was surprised that it's so high. You don't get a lot of alcohol. No, you don't. No. Um, I would be surprised. I would like to kind of look up online and see what they would kind of say, like, a food pairing for this would be. I really, yeah, I would have to say, you know, you're going to, because it's going to, anything like tomato-y, you're going to get the acidity from the tomatoes. It's going to be overwhelmingly spicy. I would say anything that mutes the palate, really. Without, uh, like, like a yeah, fish or something. I guess, yeah. I, I would say anything that mutes the palate, um, nothing that has an overwhelmingly herby or spicy, you know, yeah, like, spicy texture to it. Just, I mean, I'm like I said, I, like, I, and I usually don't think of beers in food pairing senses because I'm not that refined. Nothing against it. I would actually kind of like to get more into it, but it's just like something I kind of never really... You know, I bet you chocolate. Yeah, that would be I bet like, chocolate. I, bet. I don't. I wouldn't. I don't see this. So, like to me, I, 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 I wouldn't like view it as a dessert beer. No, I wouldn't say it's a dessert beer, but I definitely would say like a chocolate, sort something of, salty to go yeah, with. The, yeah, chocolate and salty. I think would would go well with it. But, well, yeah, like I said, I don't think it's like a, anywhere near like a dessert beer. But it, I'm you just, know, I'm yeah. just kind of curious, like. Because the reason why I kind of think of, like, bring up the food pairing thing is because other than curiosity of wanting to try this, and although I, I do agree, I do enjoy this beer, there is probably no reason for me to probably ever again, though, probably go out and buy this yeah. beer just because it's like, well, I've had it and I liked it, but, like, just because of the nature of the style. Yeah, when are no, you going to drink it again? Yeah, just, yeah, maybe, like, french fries or something. Potatoes yeah. with the palate, and you got the saltiness. I don't know. But that's that's what I would I would suggest. But giving that a try, we've spent way too much time on beer now. There's no such thing as too much. time. We've spent beer. too much time. We're we're coming up on the 20 minute mark, and we barely talked about the Buda, Grand Budapest Hotel. So, um, let's get right into it. We've had, I mean, you've had the Grand Budapest Hotel for a few months now. I mean, you bought almost it on a year. Yeah, almost a year. Has it been that long? Film came out in um, 2014. Yeah, and we talked about seeing it in theaters, and we never ended up doing Well, because it didn't, like, another it wasn't perk, around you. Another perk of living in a small town. If we want to see, like, kind of a... Arty film? Arty film like this, uh, you have to drive all the way out to Albany. Yeah. To go, you know, go see yeah, it. to see it. Yeah, so we talked about going to see it, and then eventually when it came out on, on video, you bought it, and it's been kind of sitting around in your, your room. We've been talking about doing it. We talked about how it would be a good a film to cover on the podcast, but we never really got the chance to see it, so we wanted to take this opportunity to, to uh, watch it and do a podcast on it, and I'm almost kind of upset that we didn't watch it previously, like we that we didn't watch it for the one time for the first experience and then watch it again for the podcast, knowing more about it, mm -hmm. you know, knowing and having experienced what it is, because honestly, I feel a bit underprepared to talk about it. Um, and that's not normally the case that I, how I feel with most films. Um, but I feel like the Grand Budapest Hotel requires a little bit more research. I think, like like I said, when we finished watching it, I think it's definitely a film that probably requires a couple more viewings just to kind of fully grasp things. Um, I would say not all Wes Anderson films are that way, but I th 
feel like as the years have gone on from like kind of if you remember from like watching Bottle Rocket kind of like the simplicity Oh yeah, that was it. a very simplistic and like film. straightforward film yeah. and even, and even, though, even like, uh, the, the Royal Tenenbaums is pretty straightforward in, in the way that it's presented. It's not, it's quirky, but it's obviously got one single thread that kind of runs and you, throughout. And, and it's, like, it's really, like, linear and, like, kind of, Oh, very, yeah. Easy and, to follow. And, and almost like, it's almost like a Seinfeldian movie, like, that you're watching this family and there's really not much that's technically happening within but as it goes along you know you're adding more and more things that that build on to this family with this you know with the grand budapest hotel i would say that it's probably one of the most action oriented films that wes anderson has done based on the amount of movement within and the amount of things that plot yeah. that happen yeah um i would agree with that i would say like, I'd say, like, with the action, I mean, this, um, it's, like, comparative, except a little bit even more so than, like, the life aquatic. Right. Um, I, I feel like, and this just could be my opinion or my own viewing, and it could be totally wrong, but from, like, what I gather from watching his films, and I've seen, like, I said before, big fan of Wes Anderson, I've seen... Rushmore and Life Aquatic and the Royal Tenenbaums like hundreds of freaking times. Um, I feel like kind of like that more like story, like complex narrative yet and kind of that this film has, even though it's not like complex, but just like how everything kind of flows flows and requires kind of like specific attention to detail kind of started with like Darjeeling. I would say so. And And that's the one that... I would say, like, Darjeeling, which I haven't seen since it came out, but, no. like, I, it has been a film that I've been wanting to rewatch just to see if, like, if there was something that I was, like, missing through. Because the same, I had kind of the same reaction, too, while watching Moonrise Kingdom. Uh, it's something that, like, maybe I ought to watch it again, you know, to pick up more on some of the humor and the subtleties to it. Mm-hmm. You know, um... But, yeah, I mean, I think that... There's an obvious progression from Moonrise Kingdom to the um, the Grand Budapest Hotel. There's a, a coming of age story that's present in Moonrise Kingdom that's very similarly presented in the Grand Budapest Hotel. Um, I mean, in a different way, obviously. Moonrise Kingdom and Grand Budapest Hotel couldn't be uh, on the op- any more on the opposite ends of the spectrum as to what the actual story is. I mean. It's hard to compare the Grand Budapest Hotel story to really anything besides French epics, you know, like French uh, adventure tales and um, like German expressionism sort of too. Uh, You know, he is, you know, Wes Anderson is like, you know, a big fan of like late 50s, early 60s. Like uh, French Art Nouveau. And um, and I think that's, you know... when talking about Grand Budapest Hotel, and if you had just to throw out, like, a comparison to, like, well, what's it like? I mean, I guess you would say that. But at the same time, it's really hard because Wes Anderson's story within this film is so complex and, you know, um, the narrative is complicated in such a way that it's really hard to really compare it to anything. Um, So, like I said, Moonrise Kingdom... While it has that sort of coming-of-age story that Grand Budapest Hotel envisions throughout the film, um, they're they're totally different. While at the same time, ex- Wes Anderson is exploring some more complicated ways of telling a story. Um, there's a lot of, like I said before, fluidity within both of these stories. That uh, movement that really doesn't happen in earlier Wes Anderson films as far as what we were talking about before, um, you know, the Royal Tenenbaums, there's not a ton of movement within that film as to, like, we start here and we end up here. Um, And I would say that the Grand Budapest Hotel is like getting on a train in one station and ending up, like, in another country on a different station because it moves that far within the spectrum of this hour and 40 minutes that we see. Um, which I think is a really 
admirable quality to this film. Um, the one thing that I talked about is that there's so many layers within the plot itself that we're, we're looking at a story within a story within a story that I really didn't think it was going to come together at all. I, I was like, how are we going to get back to that original scene that we saw of a girl placing a pin, a pin on a statue and reading a book titled The Grand Budapest Hotel? Which is about the author who wrote the book, you know, giving his memoir yeah. about how he came to write the book of him interviewing, interviewing the person with the stories about in the yeah. film. Which adds a layer of complexity, if you ask me, that's kind of not needed. Like, you didn't really need... Well, I think you Wait, do... Wait, but, but, but it, I don't think, like, they need to have, like, a girl in the beginning sitting down at a statue of, like, modern day, uh, what the country is. Yeah. Um, which is a... I can't remember the name of the country. Right? Yeah, it's... But yeah. It's, it's, it's a fictionalized Central European country. Um... But, like, I don't think you really needed, like, a girl sitting down reading this book, then going to the author, kind of giving, like, the the preface to the book, saying, like, how he came about to write that book, and then him... I mean, I, I like the part where the, uh, the, you see the young author, who was played by Jude Law. Yeah. I like that, you know, saw him interviewing an older Zero and him telling his story. I think that would have been a fine enough, you know, launching point, but... I think that kind of complexity in the beginning, it, it is kind of like a staple of like Wes Anderson films, like kind of going like back to the Royal Tenenbaums. It starts off with kind of supposed to be a form, a medium, a medium. Yeah. yeah, as you said, like it plays out like a play, which it does, but at the same time, it's supposed to be like a book because you have Alec Baldwin narrating each you know chapter of the movie, and it specifically says like chapter one, chapter two, so it's kind of you know. Like a hybrid, yeah. Uh, like a, I don't know how to explain myself right now, but but I mean, I, I think that uh, this, I think that it's intentional. The the layering of it is intentional to to show how a story is created. I think that you know, as we've seen before with the play and uh, with the documentary, this is a metacritical approach to showing how a, a tale is created. You know, you have the young writer who's interviewing Zero to, to kind of come up with a story that he then creates. And then you have the older writer, um, you know, that is telling us where that came from. And then finally you have that story, that um, timeless story passed on within book form. So the passage of time here is is meant to show how that story has carried on through legacies that kind of gives a historical background to the main protagonist Gustave. He's he, you know, he was a historical figure that may not have been important within the scheme of things within his own history, but his story has been passed on time and time again and that's you know, that layering of years is meant to show that how, how his legacy has been, has mm -hmm. been passed on. Um, and, and part of that is almost in tribute to Zero, who has been able to, over time, tell the story of Gustav because of their, you know, relationship. So, you know, I think that's intentional. I think, um, I, I wouldn't say that it was unnecessary because I, I, I do like it. I, I would say that the, you're right, the, the first scene, the first one with the girl who opens the book that says the Grand Budapest Hotel, it could have used a little bit more, you know, description, maybe. It's a very quick scene and I almost didn't even realize when, when we went back in time, you know, what the importance of that was because, you know, it, it was so quick that you almost missed the importance of it. It's just a quick it. thing of her going to yeah. a statue of the author who wrote the book. Exactly. And the author's only mentioned by, as the author. The author. And yeah. he's, the statue that she's reading his book by has like a bunch of medals on it. So you're supposed to yeah. kind of get the feeling that he's like an important author who's, you know, told many important stories throughout the years. And then like from her just opening the book, it jumps to him like back in 1985 giving his memoirs. And then he like jumps into 1968 talking to Zero, yep. and then which got, goes to 1932 of Zero how he became the lobby boy at the Grand Budapest. And 
Right. And I think, you know, that, again, that, that layering is so important to what they're trying to say about how stories are told and, and how we are honoring the people that we, we glean those stories from. Um, so as a writer and as a, you know, as a study in English, I, I appreciated what he was saying about book creation and, and things like that. Um, I, you know, I, I didn't mind that as, but you're right. I thought that the, the opening scene could have used a little bit of work there. Um, just to kind of give the, the reader or the, not the reader, the, the audience a, a little bit more within that story. And that's part of the thing that I didn't think we would ever be able to return to is that I was like, how are we going to get back to that girl reading the book? The one thing that really surprised me at that opening scene is there are no credits. No, there isn't. Um, no credits. Just, and, and really besides the title of the book presented in, you know, in picture, mm-hmm. no title credits. No, no, nothing. It's just, uh, jumps right into the thing. Right. Exactly. So, I mean, I thought that was pretty interesting as well. Um, the other thing that I wanted to point out, and I want to say this before I forget, we haven't really talked about, you know, Wes Anderson's obviously, um, um, noticeable style is that within this film, we get right at the beginning, uh, make sure your picture is in 16 by nine. Uh, and that's, uh, it seems it's a joke basically because once we get into the film, we're in 16 by nine widescreen. And then we jump to when we get to the, you know, the original, the story from 1932 that, uh, zero telling about, we get to four by three. <laughs> and so that 16 by nine joke is kind of a reference to, you know, we're going to be jumping back in time. So we're going to actually, the screen is going to condense as we, we get further and further away from our present time period. So it was kind of, you know, it's kind of a a film joke, but I I appreciated it. And I did like uh, how, you know, each time we, we jumped back in time, we got a little bit more condensed. So you got your 16 by nine, you got your, just a little bit more condensed version when we jump, you know, to 1985, even 1962 just gets a little less widescreen Mm -hmm. and they eventually have the four by three. So, I like that, and I think, you know, what I wouldn't say that's Wes Anderson himself because it's been done numerous times before. But um, within, you know, the approach to that sort of jumping back in time, we're seeing that more and more within contemporary, um, you know, uh, television and movies. Um, Hannibal, um, one of my favorite shows that got canceled for whatever reason, but uh, um, within season two no season three actually i want it, it was um you know they they do jump back in time and we do get that kind of condensed letterbox um that kind of shows up and the same thing with american horror story which uh, obviously I, I a lot of times i'm not a huge fan of american horror story but they do have a visual flair that they they have running throughout each of the seasons and they also use that sort of styling as well using a lot of you know noir styles dutch camera angles things like that so uh, we're seeing that more and more within contemporary uh, mediums, um, but yeah. So we well, let's just jump into the visual style of the Grand Budapest Hotel because it. I would say that it's one of the more colorful and elaborate settings that we've seen from a Wes Anderson film. Yeah, it's it's, uh, it's got a muted it's, color palette. It's um, he's always had uh, in his films very you know vibrant colors. Right, you're right. Um, pastel colors. Yeah, not, not, not so much as in, like, bright, but right. more, as you said, like, pastels, kind of, he's always got the same font ch- type, yeah. you know, that kind of stamps on his film, which I don't, you know, it's not a bad thing. I, I, I personally, his, like, overall, like, art style and visuals, I, I enjoy. Yeah. Um, there's always a certain, you know, you always get a certain feel to his films that are visually, that are unique and you can tell that like it's unique in that he's bringing back an older style yeah. too i mean it's yeah obviously like, he's been influenced by as we said classic like, films yeah, like from the Artist 50, Bo. yeah mm-hmm. like from the 50s and 60s but it's yeah i definitely enjoy like the overall visual style it's mm-hmm. definitely definitely very appealing it, su- it sucks you in and i like to like how 
some of the effects in the film, like like how you see the outside shot of the stop gun. motion yeah. sort of effects that we get that kind of blend right into the regular yeah. camera angles. Yeah, that was really cool. Um, I I like that a lot, and and especially with the outside shots in the winter, the contrast that you get very very bright whiteness that kind of is in contrast to the brightness of the colors that we normally see within. I, I like that too. That that whole visual styling of literally changing settings within each part within the the story itself uh, was complemented by the changing color scheme that we get, um, which. I, you know, I, th- I think is a nice touch to this. Well, not only that, like, as we said, with, like, the pastel coloring and just the overall kind of what would seem like to be, like, bright and cheery atmosphere that the film presents to you. And it's not just this film. It's basically all his films. Because mm-hmm. all of his films are kind of basically dark comedies, dramedies, you know. Um, so you have you get this great uh, dichotomy between the bright colors of the sets and the looks and the characters' clothes. And even the quirkiness of the characters and the quir- And the quirkiness of the characters, but the story itself is... It's dark. The it's, characters themselves are dark. They all have these problems that are, are dark. And, yeah, I mean... And it's, it's definitely, you know, you got that great contrast between... What you're, you're being shown visually, and then what you're seeing the characters in the story, how it actually all plays out. And that's one of the things that's always kind of appealed to me. Like, kind of, uh, again, referencing like the Royal Ten Bombs. Like, and the comedy, too, um, which I'll say this, and for most of his films, is not your traditional laugh out loud. No, you know, you're going to be having great guffaws of laughter. It's yeah. uh, very... It's a dry and... Very dry and very kind of, you know, laugh... You laugh on the inside, like in, like how it makes you think and stuff. And it's, a lot of that humor, too, is kind of like little visual quirks and like little quick quirks by the characters that make the, you know, make it funny. And kind of like... Looking back, like one of the funniest part, uh, Wes Anderson moments for us is like in the Royal Ten Bombs when you had Dudley and the Gypsy Cab pulls up while Bill Murray and Gwyneth Paltrow's character are having like a serious discussion on their relationship and how like she doesn't want to be in a relationship with them anymore and like the ta- Gypsy Taxi pulls up and it's this beat up taxi that looks like crap and nobody would ever want to get into it. and Dudley's just like that taxi's got a dent in it and then it quickly pa- pans over back to Bill Murray and like. Well, why are you leaving me? And she's like, I just need to get away from you. And he's like, and then it pans back to Dudley. And it's like, and there's another, and another, another. It's that humor. <laughs> See, Ryan's laughing over here. <laughs> it's just like simple things like that. Yeah. <clears throat> that are that are the humor in the film, and it's yeah. the same thing with the Grand Budapest Hotel. Oh, definitely. Like when you have the scene where Zero standing outside checkpoint nineteen, the prison where uh, Ray Fine's character uh, Gustav's being held. And you see this big door, and it says on it, you know, checkpoint 19. And it sounds like the big door is going to open up for uh, Zero to fu- walk into. And then it, the camera just zooms out and pans over, and you see a guy like, pointing his head out of the door, and he's like, hey, over here. And then just goes on to the scene. Like, it's subtle humor and quirks yeah. like that that make the film yeah. humorous. And I would say a lot of it is Ralph Fiennes' delivery. Yeah, Ray Fiennes is hilarious in this. Like, just with his... And his dialogue, which I think this film more so than any other Wes Anderson film you might want to carry a thesaurus with, because the... Yeah, I mean, the the set, the time period itself and, and his manner of speaking is, you know, it definitely gives off a, an aura of sophistication that and intelligentsia intelligentsia yes and um like yeah i mean i i would say i'm trying to think of the word here well almost like dandyism because he is a dandy dandy. i mean he's a he's a dandy he's he he's right out of uh you know uh, um uh, he's you know anything like uh you know the the picture of Dorian Gray and and things like that. He's 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 definitely a dandy. Um, so I mean, I 
I, I agree. I think you, you know, it would be helpful to have a thesaurus, um, but I think you could get away without having one. I mean, you, you definitely, you definitely get the, the scope of what he's saying without, in the context, without needing a thesaurus. But yes, he, he is a, a very eloquent man. I, I think that's part, you know, and that's part of the humor too, is just some of the things, and, and some of the, con in contrast too, like he is a very eloquent and articulate person, and I think some of the humor comes from too, is his breaks from like the eloquence and whatnot, like for instance, when he's explaining the Zero in prison, how he got like bruises on his face, Zero's like, how did that happen? And he's like, well, when you see some penny dreadfuls, you know, trying to give you a hard time in prison, you gotta whoop their candy asses. Right. Yeah, it, definitely that, and but it, again, just his his dry delivery of, of things that are funny, but that he doesn't really you know per, enunciate is is another classic example. And as and again with Zero, who's basically this you know the title character in this coming of age story, you know, understanding what he's saying, and then also kind of becoming confused as to like what he's actually. <laughs> you know, referring to is another great thing to see, uh, within the Grand Budapest Hotel. Um, I would say that the humor within this film is almost more equivalent to like the life aquatic than it is, um, Moonrise Kingdom, which Moonrise Kingdom I thought was somewhat funny, but more on the dramatic side. I, I didn't really think it was as funny as most of Wes Anderson's output. So I would say, like, and even in Darjeeling Limited is really, to me, very dry. Way more on the dry side than comedy. No, I, I, I agree. Yeah. I, think, I think with Darjeeling, I think the humor, mainly in that film, stems from its, you know, Owen Wilson being the overly control, controlling brother, and him, like, even being so dictatorial to Adrian Brody and... Jason Schwartzman in that film, like, of how he, he's going to tell them what they're ordering to eat and whatnot. Yeah. I think that's, like, so, that was, like, the main humor in that film, and that, you know, to me, in that film, I think Owen Wilson was one of the very few entertaining parts about it. Like, I didn't really care for Jason Schwartzman or Adrian Brody, which, I don't really care for Adrian Brody that much to begin with, but I think he actually, he was actually really funny in this He was good. Because he's he, good he got all the, you know, hilarious kind of lines in it, Because he was... The overly, you know, evil character that's so evil that it's hard to believe that he's, you know, they gave him a goddamn twirly mustache. Yeah, they yeah. did. Yeah, yeah. And you, you said the eraser had hair. Yeah. So, but. definitely like the definitive evil character yeah. within. But also, we can't forget Willem Dafoe, who is also the. You know, the other evil character within the Grand Budapest Hotel. Because at the heart of this film is a murder. It's a murder mystery, basically, as to who done it. It's almost like an English cozy. <laughs> um, I think that, you know, Agatha Christie would be kind of happy with how this turned out as, as part of, like, a, a little cozy murder mystery um, <laughs> that has, a, a, to be honest, a, a much darker scope than what most of Christie's stories had, but at the same time, um, like I said before, while there's a lot of comedy within Grand Budapest Hotel, the overarching plot behind this is that there's a, a murder that occurred of a woman that Gustav was close to, and all he wants from it is this, uh, you know, really, really uh, expensive painting known as Boy <laughs> with the Apple. Uh, that uh, the rest of the family wants to take away from him, uh, including Adrian Brody uh, as Dimitri. So the, the whole thing is about a murder mystery that we kind of forget about through much of it because the comedy between, um, you know, Zero and Gustav, it, it kind of takes away from that. But really, they're running from sadistic people like Willem Dafoe's um, and, oh, and, Joplin. And, say, and there's, you know, a war... Starting to go and on. exactly, yeah. There's a war that is somewhat reminiscent of World War II that's beginning. They even mention, you know, um, the ZZ as uh, a faction, just you know, that is set up similarly to Hitler's SS. Um, they wear patches like Hitler. Mm -hmm. There's a, a lot of allusions to Hitler within this film. 
um, Hitler and his, and his party. And so, you know, there's this war forming on the outskirts as well. Um, that, yeah, I mean, you've got a lot of dark things that are happening and the comedy kind of helps to take away from that. But at the same time, it's, it's always present within the background of the film. Um, I think that, would you say this is one of the, the, I would say this one of the most violent movies too that Wes Anderson does. Yeah, it's the most violent. It's... Yeah, I mean, you know, you've got your you've got your dark, morbid humor within the life aquatic. Esteban was eaten. But within this one, I mean, Wes Anderson is really presenting these things to us blatantly. I mean, he doesn't skimp on, you know, opening a box with a head in it and pulling it out. That, you know, that occurs. It's or, not... Or fingers getting... Or fingers be, Jeff Goldblum's fingers for, you know... Jeff, he, I can't believe he did that to him, but Jeff Goldblum's fingers being chopped off in a door. Um, he's not a, you know, within the comedy, and uh, to be honest, those parts are funny as well, but he's not afraid to present the gore as well. There's one thing that I wanted to bring up with Willem Dafoe's character, which I love. I mean, I love that character, Jopling. I think he's really funny. I think that Willem Dafoe just, he has that menacing quality. I mean, he's always so natural in Wes Anderson's films. He is too. very natural, Just, you know, and I really liked his character within this. I, you know, he was quirky. He was definitely that sort of hitman from crime and noir films that you the over the you top, would normally you know. see the over the top guy that you would see within those films. And at the same time, you know, you've got him in these ridiculous situations, like dressing up like a monk, waving around his little. <laughs> um, what is that? The I don't even know what that's called. The the thing that the monks wave around with the, the bell. You know, yeah, the bell thing that he's waving around. You know, you, he's in that as well. So I, I think that that character is really one of the funniest parts of the Grand Budapest Hotel by far. Um, and he also presents a really awesome scene that is reminiscent of a Jello film um, when he's chasing Jeff Goldblum throughout a museum that's filled with, um, you know, night knight's armor and very dark passages, very long passages, um, really reminiscent of Jello films like Dario Argento Suspiria, um, which I wanted to bring up, you know, obviously Blood and Black Rum podcast is a, is a primarily more of a horror podcast, so um, tying that in with the Grand Budapest Hotel is difficult, but definitely there is some Jello influence in here, um, or at least Italian film in general. Um, very... The, the dark passages, the very long passages, um, the great architecture that we see throughout the Grand Budapest Hotel as well, very reminiscent of Suspiria's outdoor scenes. And um, even, you know, Willem Dafoe's chasing with his, his black leather is a, is a very Jello-esque um, inclusion in this film. So um, if anybody's looking to kind of have that, you know, sort of influence with it, or, or see a film by Wes Anderson that has that influence, The Grand Budapest Hotel is one of them, so definitely check it out for that, um, which, I mean, I I love that part, too. Um, I mean, anything with Jeff Goldblum, though, is really great, so. Oh, yeah. He's fantastic, and not a Tim, uh, Tim and Eric's Billion Dollar Movie. He is great. And um, uh, it, Bill Murray's also in this film, real quick. As part of this like secret uh, group of hotel concierge uh, that uh, are you know they they get together when needed to help out anybody else that's in danger. So um, he's in it real quick. He has some really great lines and an even better mustache. Oh, fantastic mustache! Fantastic mustache. <clears throat> um, honestly, I want to see more of him within the film. Oh yeah, no, and Owen Wilson too has a. A real bit part. Yeah. Bit, two minute bit part, but it's, you know, very Owen Wilson. And that's one of the things, too, that I like about uh, Wes Anderson films is he's definitely always, it's always an ensemble cast. Mm-hmm. You know, you always have these giant cast of characters that each have about, you know, equal amount of screen time. Yeah. So you get to see them all shine. He usually sticks to the same, you know, same people. Like Willem Dafoe has been in. <clears throat> few of his films, Jeff Goldblum, Ed Norton, Bill Murray, Owen Wilson. 
they, you know, they all had Adrian Brody. They're all Tilda Swinton. She's in there as well. They they all have uh, they all I think just with their style fit within Wes Anderson's style, and I I like that. Like you, I I I don't think I would ever get fatigued by like Wes Anderson could constantly have like a new film idea and kind of always insert the same people in. And it would work fine for the most part, I think, because I think they, the actors themselves, they know, like, where to go with the film and the characters and how to portray them and how to get Wes's vision across. And I think Ray Fiennes, who's, this is his first Wes Anderson film, I think he fits perfectly in, like, Wes's creative style and how he's pre- presents himself, how he acts. Yeah. It was, it was great. And... One of the interesting exclusions is George Clooney, not in this film, and also um, who else was I thinking? Um, Angelica Houston's usually in. Well, yeah, Angelica Houston's normally in there, Um, and uh, Bruce Willis. Bruce Willis and Moonrise Kingdom, though. Yeah, but he's like I think he's he's a pretty go-to person for Wes Anderson as well. Within the current spectrum, uh, I think that he... Um, I could live without them. You could live without him? Yeah. Well, how about Luke Wilson, though? I would like to see him. I would, there. too, because, yeah, well, it's kind of... Adrian Brody and Luke Wilson, almost to me, like, they could be, like, the same freaking person. They're both, you know, overall... I mean, at least Adrian Brody, not in this film, but they always kind of come across as, like, the monotone, uh, you know, very, yeah. very dry... Like I get, like when I watch uh, Peter Jackson's King Kong, I can imagine Luke Wilson playing the same exact role, the same exact way as Adrian Brody in that film. Yeah, because it's just the same, you know, deadpan dry. But I, I like Luke Wilson a lot more though. I think, I think he does a lot better. But like I said, Adrian Brody in this film is hilarious. You know, he gets to throw around a few f bombs. Yeah, he's ve- very animated. So we talked a little bit about. You know what? What the film is about, which is it's a coming of age story within a murder mystery setting. But do you think there's any more depth to what Wes Anderson has presented with, you know, the allusions to Hitler and World War Two and and sort of the the historical background with what we we've been presented, the continual spectrum of time within the, the stories. And is there anything that you in particular can, can see within that? Or is it is it meant to be just a quirky sort of dark comedy that presents these things as part of a a different way to tell the story? I think it's I think it's done more for, I mean I didn't like I'd probably have to watch it again to kind of try to get a more in depth viewing. But I think it's more for storytelling's sake and just to, like, give it more of a his, historical, like, make it, like, a historical film, but not so much as make it about one specific, specific thing. thing. Like, you know, not trying to say, like, a specific thing. I think ha- having Zero, who is a refugee from a made-up East Asian country, come to this made-up central European country in the 30s and how it's if it was to relate to our time period our in our lives uh, it would be you know about you know the rise of Hitler and the SS and the Nazis you know slowly before World War II even started just slowly kind of building up the military and like annexing you know certain parts of European countries that's like what the film kind of is talking about with how, you know, they say there's a war that's brewing, but you don't really, like, why is there a war brewing? Right. And they don't really give you a, uh, show you, like, what are the sides of the war? Or, you know, or how this ZZ, how it really relates. I think it's all there just for kind of the story purposes of how Zero got from being a young man to who he is today. 
yeah. I, I think the his like relating all that historical context that I just did. I I don't think it's trying to be really deeper. Something else. Than... Something else. I think it's more just a means to an end to to get zero from being a young man and his, then his you know his time at the Grand Budapest. And I think it was a, an intentional alternative to history to prevent anything from resembling real history too much. I mean, I don't think he wanted to actually recall real events. Yeah. I think the intention was to provide a fake reality that we can watch that is n- not predicated on our own context of historical background within, you know, Nazi Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, I, yeah, I definitely think that that was a, a, an intentional choice just to, to kind of take away that context. I mean, we know what happened within, you know, that time period, but I think that they wanted to kind of pull us away from that. And, and not only that, like, because again, the country where this, this made up country that the film takes place in, isn't it supposed to be a, like, a Germany? It's supposed to be one of the countries yeah. that was affected by... In, that was Central and Eastern European that was affected by Germany's aggression during the early 30s and mid 30s. Because, <clears throat> and that point's made even like clear, like where at the end you hear how Zero lost all his fortune. And the Buda, Grand Budapest yeah. Hotel is really nothing. It's a it's an aging hotel that no one really that basically Yeah, and he basically lost all his fortune and whatnot because the country fell to communism. So that would be. Yeah. Well, like I said, I don't think that like that historical backdrop is there to be used as like a means to tell a story. Not as I don't think there's any critique or right, going on there. Yeah, I definitely think that the the entirety of the the storytelling experience of jumping from each time period was an intentional way to show how the legacy of history continues especially for one specific person like Gustav. Um, but other than that, I think it was a means of telling the, the coming-of-age story and and the remembrance of that one person. I think that's part of Wes Anderson's quirkiness is that you know he's coming up with these inventive tales as a sort of fable. Mm-hmm. Um, a modern day, or in this case, you know, a past fable. Um, but I guess, how would you, uh, how would you compare it within the, the, the amount of movies that you've seen from Wes Anderson? I mean, where does this sit for you at this point after one viewing? Um, right now, probably in the middle, right in the middle. I probably above Darjeeling. Well, yeah, I, I probably, like I said, I'm going to watch the film again, but to me, it's always, it's, you know, the Royal Bombs. I think, you know, to me, is like just a masterpiece. It's one of my favorite films of all time. Then probably Rushmore, The Life Aquatic. Then probably this. Then Moonrise, Bottle Rocket, and then Dirty Unlimited. Okay. But. Makes sense. I think I, I definitely did enjoy it more than Moonrise Kingdom. No, I, I agree. Yeah, like, like, you know, like even like, like 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 even looking back like Moonrise Kingdom, the only thing to me that I can ever that really like sticks out to me besides like the overall visual style, which is you know very like like reminiscent to uh, his just style in general, is like just kind of like Ed Norton's quirkiness in that film. Yeah, Boy Scout. Yeah, because yeah. yeah. that because that quirkiness that he has, like oh no, one of our cu- our scouts has gone missing. Like reminds me like when he was sitting in the in this film when he's like. They're looking for uh, Rousseau when he uh, escaped from prison, and he's like popping out of a hole. And he's like, "All right, I want you to go looking here, and I want you to go in there. Yeah. I want you to set this up." You know, that reminded me a lot of him in that film. Yeah, but you're right. I, I can't. You know, it was probably a couple of years ago that we saw it, but I, I can't recall that much about the film. It didn't really stick with me. Like I like. And it's not just because I've seen the Royal Ten Bombs and Rushmore and uh, Life Aquatic a thousand times, 
But even after watching those films, they stuck with me. Like I like even like like the littlest things, like with Life Aquatic. I'll, you know, I always made me laugh hysterically when uh, Kate Blanchett's interviewing Bill Murray, and then you just you got this like serious conversation going on, and Bill Murray's getting defensive about it, and then you just see in the background you got like whales and dolphins swimming around, like kind of poking their head at the. At the glass on the Belafonte, which is like just adds the humor to the scene that you know quirkiness and yeah, and the same thing with the Royal Ten Bombs. It's yeah, you know, just like little things that I can remember from the film with like the scene where you got Luke Wilson and Owen Wilson in the same room and they're just sitting there quietly and like uh, Luke standing up against this big painting mural on the wall that just looks ridiculous and it pans over to uh, Owen Wilson. And he's like, "What do you say?" Luke Wilson's like, I didn't say anything. He's like, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> you know, it's like something little like that is hilarious and like just, you know, stays with you. Yeah. Yep. All right, so uh, out of one out of ten bright pink pastry boxes, what do you give the Grand Budapest Hotel? Probably eight and a half. Eight and a half? But no, I said, when I, how do you have... A half a pastry box. You get a pastry. <laughs> you cut it in half yeah. like the the guard in the prison, <laughs> cutting into every single. Well, I, I gotta give it an eight and a half because it's not quite a nine, yeah. and then it's not it's not an eight either. I yeah, I'd probably give it like a, an eight, eight and a half. I would say. I I definitely enjoyed it. Um, like I said, throughout most of it, I thought I I was really wondering how it's going to come together. Because I was, you know, as we we're getting through, I was like, we gotta be close to the end, and I we haven't even gotten, you know, back to the original, back to the the telling of the story in 1960, and then not even back to 1985, and then not, you know, we had a long way to go on that the onions layers, but we got there, and so that was that was surprising in itself. So I would say an eight eight and a half is and. And definitely uh, intrigued to see what Wes Anderson has up his sleeve next time. Because um, for a little while there with like Darjeeling Limited, I was a little concerned that I wasn't going to really enjoy the rest of Wes Anderson's philosophical output based on where he was in life, where you know what he was writing. But uh, you know, Moonrise Kingdom, fairly good, and then Grand Budapest Hotel, better. Maybe we'll go up from here. So. Um, anything else? I think that's about it. I mean, I know I, the, which is, uh, we didn't really talk about it, but the soundtrack is good. Uh, the only thing I was kind of disappointed in that we didn't get, like, our nostalgia, uh, nostalgia tracks that you got, like, but I, I kind of liked it because oh, wait, it was it, a it timelessness. No, I know, it. I know, I agree. It, the, the... You're absolutely right. With the, with having its own original score throughout the entire film fits it and it makes perfect sense. But to like, it's just one of the staples for me. Is like Wes Anderson usually has that you know nostalgic rock playing in yeah. the back. Like one of the best thing reasons why like you know one of the few things that I really loved about like Darjeeling was like the main soundtrack to that film was uh, the Kinks Lola versus the Power Man and the Money Go Round Part One. You know, that was cool to me. And same thing, like, the Royal Bombs had, like, that same feel. And the Life Aquatic was, like, you know, the whole David Bowie soundtrack. Yep. And, like, but I agree. It d- definitely didn't need it. It gives it its timelessness. But it's kind of like, well, that's one of the staples that he usually has. And it's not there. And he's just, like... Yeah. Kind of more like a... Meh. Yeah, I mean, I love I loved the, the soundtrack to Jeff Goldblum's Murder. That was a really nice little tinkling guitar, sinister guitar line there. So I love that. But yeah, I think it was a timelessness thing that they 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 wanted to refrain from having any soundtrack that makes songs that, would, that would, yeah. would give it yeah. a time period. So, um, so for next time, uh, we're coming up on Valentine's Day, and I think we'll do My Bloody Valentine, the original, not the remake. Okay. Yeah, the original. I was gonna ask, are we electric three D? I have the uh, the remake. I don't think it's very good. I gave it a scathing review when I saw it in theaters. I, I, I just remember, remember, you, remember you being pissed off because the whole point was it being advertised in 3D and you couldn't see it in 3D. I did not see it in 3D. I can just imagine tits coming at you in 3D, though, because there's a lot of them in there. But no, I can't see 3D, so... 
But, uh, yeah, we'll do the original My Bloody Valentine. Um, have you ever seen it before? You've probably never seen it. Before. Yeah. So, that's another classic slasher film that we have to have you see. I just don't... You have to see it. It's going to be hard at the top, Silent Night, Deadly Night. Yeah. It's true. It doesn't have the soundtrack. Oh, but it... You know what it does have is a lot of Canadian accents, because it's Canadian, so you're going to enjoy that. It does have a lot of Canadian accents, and um, it's... What is the... I can't even remember... It's got a specific beer in it from Canada that I can't remember what it is, but it's it's advertised throughout. I can't remember. Moosehead? We'll definitely see it. I don't know. It's something like that. We'll definitely see it. Wilson? Wilbat? No, no, no. It, no, it's nothing like uh, really popular, but it's definitely Canadian. So we'll... we'll uh, Does anyone sit there and be like, there's a moose, loose, a boot, and a hoose? Yes, there's... I, I'm telling you, there's a lot of Canadian accents, so you'll definitely notice. Um, so we'll, we'll watch that. Uh, we should be back next week with it, um, for Valentine's day. And I was even toying with, because let's see, what's, what's next week? The what's, what's today? The third is the third. So next week will be the 10th. And so the week after that, yeah, we may not. Um, I was thinking we could even toy with doing a live podcast of watching terrible romantic comedies for Valentine's day. And, Doing uh, doing a uh, a laugh track to that, so that would be another horrible horrible treat for for you guys to listen to and for us to endure. So you know we could watch like two romantic comedies and just steal magnolias. I don't know whatever you want. Sleepless in Seattle. Oh God, the Meg Ryan. Let's have a Meg Ryan thon. You've got mail and Sleepless in <laughs> Seattle. We should do oh, that. God. But, uh, yeah, so that's uh, something I was toying with. Um, what women want. Yeah. But we will... Yeah, yeah, I think about it like the 90s. What women don't want, want is a racist Jew hater. That's what they don't want. <laughs> I can guarantee that. Unless they are racist you know, maybe we, may, Maybe we should do the... Maybe we'll do the greatest uh, <clears throat> love story ever told. What was that? Mad Max Fury Road. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, we'll, so we'll definitely be back next week with My Bloody Valentine, at least. So um, we'll have that up for Valentine's Day. So uh, make sure you tune in. You can follow us on iTunes. Follow us on SoundCloud, the Blood and Black Rum Podcast. Um, give us a, a like on Facebook, the Blood and Black Rum Podcast. It, it basically it's pretty self-explanatory. You just pop it in the search engine and... We'll be there. Uh, you can catch me on Twitter Ryan, at Ryan T M I A D W. Um, it's not a, an official Blood and Black Rum podcast Twitter, uh, but it's what we got, and you can always tweet me about it. Um, also, check us out on Stitcher if you use it. And uh, did I cover? It? Oh yeah, yeah, that's right. Email us at Blood and Black Rum Podcast at gmail.com and let us know what you want to hear. Um, and we'll try to accommodate as best we can. And uh, so signing off for that, um, thanks for listening to our podcast about the Grand Budapest Hotel, and we'll be back next week with My Bloody Valentine. <laughs>